Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. While The Gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. Friday, September 16th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Plane loads of immigrants flown to Martha's Vineyard. No, not the vineyard. In retaliation, Edgarstown is mounting a flotilla of Radcliffe professors to descend on South Padre Island. Be warned, Lone Star State, they are tenure-tracked. This actually doesn't come directly. The plane load's not from Greg Abbott, who has been busing migrants, illegal immigrants north, but this one's from the mind of DeSantis. When I covered Greg Abbott's tactics, I mocked them as ineffective. I was wrong. They got under everyone's skin. That was the effect. And it does highlight a problem. Immigration in America is a problem. It's odd in that one side of the political spectrum refuses to admit it's a problem. They tend to think that the problem is other people saying it's a problem. But look at the stats. Border Patrol agents have made about 1.82 million arrests at the southern border in the government's fiscal year, which ends September 30th. So it could be 2 million, and that's just one border by the time we're done. I'm for more immigration, more humane immigration. I'm not for our current system, which isn't a system. It's a lack of a system. And this is an issue where the parameters aren't more immigration versus less immigration or ambitious versus cautious. It's just exasperation versus an accusation, usually of racism. So many progressives view the immigration problem as a problem of their opponents being racistly anti-immigrant. And I have heard Donald Trump's Stephen Miller written speeches. Those progressives who sense a little racism there are not wrong. But it is deeply flattering to the leftish mindset to think that that is all what's going on. And it's really foolish if politicians answer to the 1.82 million at the southern border is to say, well, Louis Gohmert, you need to be less of a bigot. That said, this latest stunt, these antics are just that, and President Biden is right. Republicans are playing politics with human beings, using them as props. What they're doing is simply wrong. It's un-American. It's reckless. And he got a big hand, as he knew he would, from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Gala, where he delivered those remarks. The problem is, if DeSantis is wrong, what is right? wrong to treat people as props, but at least props show up in your field of vision, the immigration problem in America is too often ignored as a problem. 
and Republicans, very right-wing Republicans who oppose the efforts of Republicans like George Bush and John McCain, they bear most of the blame. But it's a human-created problem. We're the humans. We need to find a solution. The solution can't be in inhumanity. But we've also got to acknowledge that this is a big problem that needs not to be solved by playing politics, but by practicing politics. We are great at stunts in America. Let's try to find solutions. On the show today, join me as we'll schlep to the sceptered aisle. It's said to be facing some headwinds. Okay. But first, Daniel Jurgen returns to discuss the proposed price cap on oil that the U.S. is pursuing and that he is advising on. Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, on next. Daniel Jurgen is the author of The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power, which won him a Pulitzer, yes, prize. He is also the author, most recently, of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Yesterday, he was on talking about the oil market, what affects prices, what Putin's strategy might be, and today, he shall guide us through where it all might be headed. More importantly, why? I started by asking, what does he think of the California rule that there will be no more new carbon-emitting automobiles sold by 2035. Is it real? Or is it like if I decree that I shall be drinking no more coffee in the morning by January 2023? Well, I, I think, I, I wonder, and this is something I really, you know, I somewhat address in, in the new map, I want to continue to understand is, well, what does this mean? If everybody's rushing to the same side of the boat at the same time, what are the supply chains? We've just learned in COVID how important supply chains are. And, um, you know, so uh, as you say, this will go into effect after he's governor. Uh, and who knows where he goes, you know, what his ambitions are after he's governor. But it's far enough away um, that, you know, one can imagine that law being changed if you suddenly see, as we've seen recently, the prices of electric cars shooting up, even with the additional federal subsidies that have just been in this new legislation. Well, also, I think I read, I think it was in the new map that I read the statistic that the average length of a car, carbon emitting car uh, on the road is 13 years. Roughly, you're right. Yeah, and it's increasing. So they passed this decree in 2022. Plus 13 is 2035. That's convenient. I guess it will just create a used car market, the likes we've never seen, and maybe the new car, if other states don't follow suit, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, Utah will be the land of new cars, and then California will be the land of of used cars. But I don't know if we're going to be able to get to the technology where it's all electric cars by 2035. Well, it's going to put a lot of stress on the power system, you know, during these recent weeks of uh, problems with electricity in California to ask people not to charge their cars. So, um, you, you know, if you if everybody's electric car, you do become very dependent on uh, the stability of the electric grid and something not going wrong there. In a sense, gasoline is a more distributed form of energy. But I think your, your point is something very interesting. If we, you know, rather than one United States, different kinds of cars are sold in different states. And, uh, you know, obviously there's people like the performance of electric cars and so forth, but you're talking about very large volumes. 
and you have a whole infrastructure, you know, goodbye to your neighborhood gas station, goodbye to the jobs of people who work in those neighborhood gas stations. And by the way, it, it takes fewer people to make electric cars. It's much easier, simpler to build an electric car than a, a conventional car. So on this program, I have committed to a position that's speculative. I normally don't go so far at an edge, but I'm just flummoxed by the logic of how a cap on oil prices could work. The G7 has said that they will cap the amount it pays to Russia in oil prices, and their stick on this, uh, as opposed to the carrot of payment, their stick is that Russian oil tankers are insured by European companies, G7 type companies. Okay, I get that. But I just think fundamentally that how I see it is if the current market for Russian oil is China and India, and they're not part of the agreed upon price cap, I fail to see how it could possibly work. But do you think there's any chance? What percent chance would you give that a price cap could work? Somewhere between 40 and 60%. I think if, if you ask for it, uh, but I think you've you pointed to uh, there are a couple of things. I mean, you've pointed to something because basically, who sets the price cap, and where is it set? So they're not telling India and China. At least this is the theory from the U.S. Treasury. They're not saying that you have to pay this price, but rather that you're not going to be able, Mister Tanker, and and a lot of the tankers are not just Russian. There, you know, there's a huge global tanker market. You will not be able to pick up any oil that that is more than let's say fifty dollars but they, they by the way they have to decide on the price which they haven't yet done and that's going to be a big uh thing i know when they floated it oil was around 90 and now it's uh come down more than 10 bucks right yeah it fluctuates and it's going to continue to fluctuate so they're saying that china and india don't have to go along with it because it will it will be more upstream but I think it's um, it's never been done before, and uh, Vladimir Putin's going to counterattack. I mean, what he could do, uh, and this is you know when I've had my discussions with the people who are formulating this, is okay. He holds back two million barrels a day and creates a panic in the world market, and people start scrambling for oil. And this is all tied into the European December fifth saying. Uh, Europe will not involve any crude oil. So I think that's why, you know, when we were talking before, I said there could be real turbulence here. And what we've seen continually, Mike, is the unexpected happens. Remember, Vladimir Putin sent his soldiers into Ukraine carrying ceremonial uniforms for their parade in, uh, in Kiev, which was going to take place in five days after the invasion. And so Putin cannot afford to lose this war. He's waging an energy war in Europe and he'll wage an energy war. So I think it's going to be it's going to be very dicey and there's going to be unexpected things that will happen. And so when we get to December, we might find it very disrupted again. And just that with the success of this recent uh, current Ukrainian offensive, Putin can't afford not to win. The West can't afford to that he wins. And so he's going to, you know, there's going to be further things that's going to be destabilizing. So I think you're right to expect that this is not something that's just going to go smoothly like a regulation handed down by some government agency. What Putin and the government says is, if you impose a cap, we simply won't sell to you at that price. And then what the West says is, that's a bluff. Do you think it is? Uh, I think I wouldn't. You know, I think uh, Putin, Putin is determined to win. And if he can create a global economic crisis, uh, he'll do that in order to win. And remember, Russia 
is, is now going to ex- end up being an economic dependency of China. So he's he doesn't care if there's hardship in Europe. In fact, he wants hardship in Europe. He wants turbulence because he wants to bring populist governments to power who will say, well, we don't really care about Ukraine and uh, walk away from it. So this is not going to be resolved peacefully. And I think that the what's happening with oil is is is, is definitely part of the war now. So the 40 to 60% uh, likelihood of succeeding, I will take that into advisement and update my priors. Are you advising uh, Janet Yellen and the people who are uh, constructing this plan? Well, I've been part of the, you know, the dialogue and they are listening to people who say why this isn't going to work, but that they, of course, say, well, it will work. And I noticed in the last couple of weeks, there's been a kind of concerted effort or last week or two to reach out and uh, communicate with people and explain how it will work, um, kind of originated in the U.S. Treasury. You know, and, and I think right now they're talking to a lot of the people in the oil market. But I think there's a lot of people who are in the oil market who kind of ask the same question you do, say this is great on, in theory, will it work in practice? And I think we'll find out on, roughly on December 5th. Tell me about this, though. If I were a commodity trader and I would have to price in whatever percentage I think this would work, and I take into account your opinion and the bigger skeptics and maybe the government itself, and I'm saying to myself, okay, maybe there's a 50-50 chance that the cap, which we don't know what it is, cap of $50 works. Don't Doesn't that alone, isn't that a signal that brings down the price of oil? So it seems at least it might not work in the long term, but at least in the short term, it will seem to have an effect. But might that effect actually trigger that the uh, just the proposal and just the threat could have a cascading effect where oil's price comes down? Yeah, I think so, particularly if you combine it with these statements from the U.S. Federal Reserve and from the other central banks that we're all go- we're we're resolute in fighting inflation. We're not going to allow it to become embedded. So, interest rate rise, interest rate rise, and so if you doing that at the same time, you're you're kind of reinforcing this whole drive to to push things down. Um, but you know, Putin can he can he can reply to it by just. Uh, already that they're doing it, shutting off oil from this other country, Kazakhstan, which flows through Russia, and take a million barrels, another some of his oil off the market, and just watch countries panic. Because I think back to what I wrote about in an earlier book, the, the, the prize about when you get a panic, you get a scramble in the market of people desperate for supplies. And so I think that, I mean, I think one has to look at history too of this to think through all the consequences. But as you say, it's a powerful signal and, um, you know, no one wants uh, one thing. No one wants to be sanctioned by the U.S. government. Let us assume that the recent amount of territory that Ukraine has gained and the momentum that seems to be um, real, seems to be genuine, means that Ukraine is fighting back or perhaps Ukraine can, quote unquote, win the war. Is that good or bad for if the interest is affordable gasoline in the United States? I think that if um, the war came to an end uh, and you know stability returned, and you took all that anxiety about this, that kind of disruption out of the market, I think that would be you know that would be a positive for people going to fill up their cars. Yes.
And what about if this means that the war will be extended in the medium term, even if that extension is because it now seems that Ukraine has more of a chance of quote unquote winning? Well, I think that um, long, I think as long as it goes on, there's you know going to be fear of it escalating in some way. I mean, there was, you know, what happens if Russia by accident or intentionally hits something in a NATO country, say in Poland, or Putin, who can't afford to lose, does decide to, you know, launch cyber attacks on, uh, and as and already doing some of it, shutting down electric power in Ukraine. I mean, he's going to counterattack. I mean, it's, but what has come out of this is the humiliation for Russia and for Putin. The fact that he has to go to Iran and buy drones, that he has to go to North Korea to buy artillery, tells you that this kind of facade of uh, that he was a strong man has been really eroded. And of course, that's been his image. So, you know, I wonder if he'll travel out of the country that, you know, people are going to question, this was supposed to be over in five days. He made so many miscalculations, but he's also, um, he's going to be merciless in, in what he does. He, he, um, you know, he's not, um, he's not somebody, the word negotiation or the word compromise is uh, negative in his vocabulary. So Putin did have this image and was regarded as quite a savvy operator, not perfect, but, you know, uh, uh, an, an excellent example of real politic or making calculated choices that worked out for him. Then came the war in Ukraine, widely seen as a gigantic blunder, such to the extent that people began to wonder, maybe we got Putin all wrong. My question is, so that is a miscalculation in terms of war and the military. Of course, it has reverberations elsewhere. But has he ever made a similar miscalculation? Or are there signs that he might make a similar miscalculation when it comes to energy? Well, yeah, I think he did make a miscalculation because he thought that Europe was so dependent on Russian energy that they would say, oh, it's terrible you've invaded Ukraine, but let's get on with life. So that was one of his one of his major miscalculations. So people you know, are now saying he's been better on tactics and strategy. What he has done over the last years, which we don't notice in the United States, he's built links with the rest of the world. So if you notice, the developing world isn't denouncing the invasion. The developing world uh, says, well, we have an important relationship with Russia. We're not going to uh, side against that. So it's really the industrial, oh, it's Western Europe, it's, it's Europe, it's the United States, Canada, Japan, and uh, you know maybe Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. Those are the countries. But, you know, Putin is meeting with the heads of the so-called BRICS, the emerging markets. And so he's he's not a pariah there. That was a mistake, miscalculation on our part to think that would be the case. But I think that um, and, you know, he was very shrewd. I just wonder if his two years of extreme isolation, his weird isolation during COVID, he was talking to a very small circle of people and kind of lost touch with reality. And if he had been out there being, you know, on the world stage, meeting with presidents and prime ministers and CEOs and stuff like that, whether he would have done what he's done, which is to throw 22 years of economic progress out the window and taken Russia from being a great power, uh, Putin at the table, uh, to making him ultimately, you know, uh, a, you know a, a dependent of China. Because... I know that you were a student at Cambridge at the same time that then Prince Charles, now 
Charles III of England was a student and you may have had some interactions with him. Can you give me your uh, impression of him and your take on how he will serve as king? Well, I, I certainly have impressions. I remember sitting in a lecture once and uh, he was trying to get behind me to get another seat in there. And he went, as he went by, oh, do you have too much for breakfast this morning? So that, so and kind I of remember food. my wife, <laughs> but in a very jocular way. And I remember my wife says, you know, she was riding her bicycle in Cambridge. And so I kind of said, oh my God, I almost just ran into the, you know, the Prince of Wales. And I'd met him in, you know, somewhat in subsequent uh uh, in subsequent years, but I, I remember, you, you know, my uh, we had a, one of our common teachers saying, you know, he would have done really well as a student here if he just hadn't gone off to do all that stuff to get invested as Prince of Wales, uh, uh, you know, and so I, he may be the first member of the British royal family who actually went to university, I think. But you know, he, he was a, a good, solid student, but he was. Uh, he had he got distracted by his by being uh, Prince of Wales. It is his distraction, you know. For a lot of kids these days, it's time spent on Instagram. But you know, for him, it was, <laughs> it was... <laughs> Prince Prince of Wales. And so, uh, you know, and I would say his security. I mean, obviously, that was time. His security was not uh, intrusive. I mean, so I, you know, when my wife almost ran into him with her bicycle, she was not tackled by two brawny uh, plain clothesmen. <laughs> right. Or two beef eaters who uh, have to ma maintain stoicism even in the face of tackling a Cambridge student. Yes. Daniel Jurgen is vice chairman of S&P Global. He is the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. His latest with a new epilogue is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be back again. And now the spiel. Queen Elizabeth II served 70 years, and it seems as if the idea is for her goodbye to last 70 more. She will be buried Monday, 11 days since her death. Well, I guess we can compare it to Thailand, where the king there lay in state from October 2016 to October 2017. And Ho Chi Minh's body is still there in Ho Chi Minh City. Go stop by, say hi. By the way, I think the body of chocolate magnate Milton Hershey would provide a fine attraction in the town named after him if he, you know, just preserved his body and propped it up, resting on some Hershey bars with almonds. The British have been told by the Parks Service to leave flowers and vegetable matters in tribute to the Queen, of course, but no more bears, please. There is no reason the death of a sovereign should occasion the specter of thousands of stuffed Peruvian bears and slickers lashed to fence posts. Paddington deserves better. Mostly, the Queen's passing has helped me focus and concentrate, not in the thinking about big issues and putting things in perspective way, but now that I have four pages in the international section, I know I can skip every morning. I did see one article in the New York Times about the then prince, now king, Charles's investment savvy. 
The facts are, he invested quite well. The tone was, how dare this robber baron benefit from his position and privilege? But no, realize baron, that would be a huge demotion, couple steps down. Why degrade the king for financial acumen? If he gets kidnapped, they'll have to pay a king's ransom. It's good to have some cash on hand. Forbes headline says, how rich is King Charles III inside the new monarch's outrageous fortune. Just how outrageous? I mean, it's not like this guy is the king of... Yes, he is, in fact, the king of England. The outrageous tone, the intimation also of unsteady, scary ground beneath the king or the kingdom itself permeates a lot of the coverage I've been listening to. On Monday, I assure you will hear many graved voice experts speak of the unprecedented nature of the challenges facing the new king and his kingdom. The boy king. He's 73. Last Sunday, Martha Raddatz, already situated in the UK for ABC's wall-to-wall coverage, gave us a glimpse of the precipice the royals are said to be treading upon. This morning, we'll reflect on the queen's remarkable life, her unparalleled legacy, and the challenges ahead for the new king as the end of the second Elizabethan era further deepens a period of uncertainty and anxiety for the kingdom Charles now leads. Insofar as there's no such thing as uncertainty in world affairs or any affairs, I wondered what was this deep anxiety being felt? Inflation is high there, just like it's high everywhere. But when you think about it, the biggest bully on the continent, Russia, is getting its teeth knocked in in Ukraine, exceeding EU and UK foreign policy hopes, by the way. Brexit is being executed, not without hiccups. I think they say hiccups instead of hiccups in Britain. The wacky old prime minister, he's out. A staid conservative in politics and temperament, prime minister is his replacement. There are no wars, there are no lockdowns, no Grinnell fire type disasters. Okay, things are anxious. But if I ask you to perform a thought experiment where you would conjure a set of circumstances that is both optimistic while also still existing in the real world, what might you articulate? I might say something like, well, let's take a nation with a lot of time to prepare. Let's install an heir who, by the way, doesn't do much or have to do much. The heir's claim to the throne will go back, oh, let's say centuries. No one will contest it. And after decades of decades of scrutiny and experience in the public eye, that heir will take power. Oh, that country will have essentially conquered a plague, extracted itself from war, avoided the wildest throes of right-wing populism infecting its neighbors. Yeah, let's also say have a broadcast media that's the envy of the world and actually have really good restaurants for once. So I think King Charles is actually inheriting a pretty decent position. Tales of his unpopularity, which play into the idea that things are shaky, stem from the British press, mostly the British tabloid press. And I submit that the British tabloid press sometimes overhypes its coverage of how bad things are with now King Charles. They may not be entirely fair. Ever hear of the Black Spider memos? Sound really ominous. But what these memos were, were the then prince writing to the prime minister and quote-unquote interfering with politics, but really nudging the prime minister along to do such things as, you ready? If you haven't heard, this is pretty shocking, to adequately supply the troops. Also, he advocated, Charles did, for better health coverage, 
with a broader range of treatments at homeopathic hospitals. Now, I'm no huge fan of homeopathy, but it was a good argument that these kind of hospitals are popular. They certainly have shown in many cases to be efficacious and they do save money. There was a badger call thing in these memos, which I actually agree with. The badger people might not. But this is the sort of scandal that contributes to him having a comparatively, compared to the sainted Queen Elizabeth II, having a comparatively low approval rating. Even the phrase, these black spider memos, it's because his handwriting was scrawl and the pen he used was black. Black spider. Sounds like, sounds like something out of Game of Thrones and not something from the life story of one of the characters who lived. Overall, this scandal was of a sustainable, energy-loving regent quietly nudging politicians in what would prove to be the right direction. So you know what I say? I say, Huzay, Huzay, God save this king, and for God's sake, save us from the mood of monarchal malaise. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. COO of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pesca's entry to the office is attended by the pipes and drums of Scottish and Irish regiments, the Brigade of Gurkhas, and the Royal Air Force, numbering 200 musicians. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.